Well, that's a hard thing to do for a father right before he's about to speak. I wonder if we could have a little more light up here. I don't know how to work the lights, and I know that it's a little bit cooler with them down, but I may not be able to read the scripture if we can't see the text here. We're coming to a climax of our study in the covenants. We have seen the history of the covenants as they have unfolded over God's dealings with his people. And now we're to the last two of those covenants. This week and next week, the Lord willing, we will look at the covenant of the kingdom that God established with David. And then the last two Sundays of July, the the Lord willing, we'll look at the new covenant. The covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31 and then is the covenant that you and I celebrate every time we speak of the blood of the new covenant poured out for the remission of sins. But this evening, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and see, look at this scripture in which God established his covenant with David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Have not I dwelt in a house from the day I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day? I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now... I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. 
but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, the covenant of the kingdom. Let us pray. Father, instruct us by your word and spirit. Give to us a hope when we are sensing that we've been downcast and downtrodden by men and their powerful machinations. Help us to know who really is in charge of this world in which we live and give to us a constant faith in his power to preserve us and to bring us to success and victory. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, every year about this time of year, we celebrate the 4th of July. And with the National Orchestra behind us and the fireworks in front of us, we celebrate. Well, what is it that we are celebrating? What is it that we hope we're not only coming from, but moving toward? Well, as a nation of people, we have certain desires, certain ambitions, certain expectations. We hope that we shall see peace in the future. We hope that we're moving toward prosperity. We hope that we're going to see ourselves become a blessing to all the nations of the world and not just among ourselves. That's what we hope that our history is leading toward as a nation. Well, now let's look at God's covenants. For they are related to history and its flow and movement. What is it that they are leading to? What is the goal? What is the purpose toward which God was moving in the establishment of his covenants? Well, if we look at the succession of covenants in the Old Testament we can see that they are leading every one of them toward a common goal. And that goal is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. The goal toward which all history is moving is the goal of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Now this lazy V here is a symbol of the movement of history from simplicity in Adam to complexity in the end of time. And we have looked to this point at the various phases and movements of the covenants that God has established in history. But where are they going? You can see that there's something like a flower or a beautiful tulip, a daylily you might say, unfolding in all its beauty. What is to be the final consummate goal of this unfolding of God's purposes as found in the covenants? Well, they're moving toward the covenant realization of the kingdom. And that kingdom came in its old covenant form in the days of David. That was the time at which covenant and kingdom merged with one another. Now let's look and see how they're moving toward one another. In the case of Adam, God said he was going to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And God said he was going to deliver his people from the oppressive power of Satan and his forces. That was the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden in Genesis 3.15. And that is to be fulfilled. When you see in the coming of the kingdom of God, Satan 
overcome and overpowered by the truth of God and by his Messiah. In the case of the covenant with Noah, God said he was going to preserve the earth. He made a commitment that he would never again allow the world to be destroyed by flood as he did in the days of Noah. God has been true to that word. We've had local floods, but we've never again seen the whole of the earth covered with water as it was in the days of Noah. But why? To what purpose? To what end was God leading? Well, he is to preserve the earth until the end of time so that his kingdom may be established. In the days of Abraham, God made a covenant, an expansion of that same basic covenant, and in the case of that covenant, the commitment was to justify the ungodly who would believe in God's provisions. That was the promise given to Abraham. And God promised him that his seed, those who identified with him by faith, would be more numerous than the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. Well, where was that Abrahamic covenant going? It started with only a single man and his family. And for a long time, they had no children whatsoever. Finally, he began to have a child, that child Isaac, upon whom the blessing of God came. But the goal of that is a kingdom. You know, there's nothing more pitiful than a king without any people. It's a sad thing to see a king without any people. There was a little cartoon in the newspaper a week or so ago in, in which this big executive was sitting in his very plush leather chair and this large desk expanding in front of him in his very plush office. And he picks up his intercom and he says, Mrs. Jones, please come in. I'm lonely. He's got the whole world at his fingertips, but he's a very lonely man up there on top of everything because he has no people there with him. What is a king who has no people? God has promised that his kingdom is going to be populated from every nation and tribe and kingdom and people. From all the nations of the world, a great multitude shall come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, a multitude that no man can number. And over the centuries, we have seen the accumulation of the numbers of those who are of the seed of Abraham. When you come to the covenant with Moses, God makes his covenant. He binds Israel to the keeping of the law. He provides sacrifice as a way for the forgiveness of sins. But to, which, to what is that Mosaic covenant leading? Well, it's leading toward a holy people, a sanctified people a people whose hearts are right with God and who walk in obedience to God's law. How is that covenant to be fulfilled? Well, it's going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's going to be fulfilled when God's Holy Spirit, even as it anointed the anointed king, both in Old Covenant and New, it anoints every single person with that holiness that comes from the power of God in their lives. So you can see that all of the covenants are moving toward a consummate goal. And that consummate goal is the coming of the kingdom of God, in which the forces of light that come from Jesus Christ overcome the forces of darkness that come from Satan and his hosts. Now it's interesting that when we come to the covenant that God establishes with David, we speak 
of the covenant of the kingdom. Adam is, is the covenant of commencement, where everything begins. Noah, the covenant of preservation, when God commits himself to hold the world together. Abraham, the covenant of promise, as God committed himself to bless his people. Moses, the covenant of law, in which God established the plumb line for the measuring of holiness among God's people. But now in David, you have the covenant of the kingdom of God. And in a very real sense, you can say that the kingdom of God came on earth with the rule of God, with the rule of God through David and the establishment of the Davidic covenant. That's what was happening. The kingdom of God in its Old Testament form came. Here is the apex, the pinnacle of the whole of Old Testament history. Here's the reason of the history. Here's the goal toward which it was moving. The establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as the king, David himself, rules in God's place. Now all of that kingdom is in anticipation of the new covenant realities and of the new covenant kingdom. But let's just look a little bit at this kingdom of God that is established when David becomes king on earth. Here you can see, first of all, in the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth through David, there is a focusing upon the person of the king. A focusing on the person of the king. You know, you, you can have a kingdom with just any old person ruling as king. But woe to the nation whose king is a child. Woe to the nation whose king is an ungodly person because there will only be a reign of oppression and sorrow and sadness for those people when righteousness is not manifested by their king. Israel got into trouble because they were so anxious to have a king. They were so anxious to have a kingdom. Give us a king like all the other nations Israel pled. And they jumped the gun. They weren't willing to wait for the right man at the right time. At the right time, God didn't bring forth that man. And he was not the greatest in terms of outward appearance. He was not the one that would have been chosen by normal human procedures. But he was God's choice because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man whose heart was right with God. And it was that man that God chose to be king in Israel. Now in terms of the ultimate realization of the kingdom of God in the new covenant, you can see that the focus has got to be on the person of the king. Very often, the Christian church casts about here and there to find this tradition or that person to, to follow. Even in Paul's day, some were saying, I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am of Paul. And Paul calls him up short. He says, oh no, there's only one king in Zion. There's only one king over God's people and that has got to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It has got to be that one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. When the king came, the kingdom came. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. 
The kingdom of God is here in your midst, he says, by his presence being with them. He could say, the kingdom of God is in your midst. When Jesus came to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he came by his own design to say, I am your king. He did not merely offer to those people, if you will accept me, I will be your king. He came and declared, I am your king. And on earth, his kingdom was very humble. On earth, his kingdom was very lowly. And even today, his kingdom is a humble kingdom. It is the kingdom in which his people under his rule suffer. They suffer at the hands of oppressive people. And even by receiving that suffering into themselves, they establish the kingdom of God on earth. But the center of the kingdom ultimately has got to be in the returning Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again in glory, when the king comes and unveils himself for what he really is. He's in the the heavens right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He is ruling over all the nations of the earth. As he said, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth right now. And the nations of the earth rise and fall by the dominion of Christ over them. People become kings and are taken down from their kingship by the reign of Jesus Christ over them today. But no one sees it. But a day is going to come in which the veil is going to be pulled back. And there every eye shall see him as he descends in all his glory with all the holy angels that are already about him, with the hosts of those saints that have died and gone into his presence, and they shall come in glory with him. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. So when you think about the coming of the kingdom, you've got to think about the coming of the king. Now, another aspect of this kingdom that is important is that this kingdom manifests itself as having come by the permanent localization or locality of the throne of God, by the permanent localization or situation of the throne of God on earth. Before David's day, The people of God were wandering people. Abraham was a nomad, wandering. Israel went down into Egypt, wandering. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, wandering. Israel under the judges was in the land, but they were not in possession of the land. But finally, in the days of David, the ark is brought up. The ark representing the throne of God. The ark is situated in Jerusalem and it's stabilized there. That's what David wants. David wants a stabilized kingdom. He wants an assurance that God is going to remain on his throne, ruling on behalf of his people. And that's what happens in the establishment of the Davidic covenant. In its Old Testament form, that throne was located where? Where is it that the throne of God was located? It was located in Jerusalem. That is where David brought the Ark of the Covenant. That is where the temple was built. Now, you can read in 2 Samuel chapter 6 
of that glorious occasion in which David brought the ark up, in which everyone hailed that wonderful fact that God was being established in a permanent way on his throne, that they were no longer to be tossed about among all the nations of the people of the earth, but they were to be their own people. That's what was going to happen. Now, that was a picture of what has happened since that day by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ and by his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he established the permanency of his throne. He established the permanency of his kingdom. And you and I have the great privilege of living in the day in which Christ is king. Christ is Lord. Now a person may choose to submit to that kingship or a person may choose to resist that kingship. And if they resist that kingship, the scripture says, he will chasten them with a rod of men and with the stripes of men. And if people bow to that kingship, then God will pour out his blessing upon that people, upon that nation, and upon that church. So that's something of the background, of the circumstances, of the significance of what is happening when the covenant of the kingdom is established under David. Now let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and just notice a few of the major emphases of this chapter as they establish the Davidic covenant. First, look at the historical occasion of this circumstance. What are the things that had happened? What transpired in anticipation of the fact that God permanently was going to rule over his people? And we've already indicated, first of all, that David took Jerusalem. David took the city of Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting. David was not a politician in the if you use that word with bad connotations, but David was a pretty wise man. He was a pretty wise man. It was something very similar to the situation in the United States in its early days. Where was the capital of this nation to be? Was it to be in New York? Was it to be in Philadelphia, where the Declaration of Independence was signed? Well, there were some people with some agricultural interest in the southern regions of our nation, and there were some people with some industrial interest in the northern portion of our nation. And what did they do? Well, they created Washington, D.C., saddling the northern and the southern interest of our land and let some states contribute some land so that a new portion of our land was established as the center of our government. And that's essentially what David did. There were two great strands of the Israelite people. There was the strand of Rachel and the strand of Leah. Rachel with the southern tribes, Leah with the northern tribes. Where was the kingdom of God to have its center, its locale? Well, for a while it was up in Ephraim in the north. But God rejected Ephraim. And God designated a city right on the line between the northern and the southern portions of the land of Israel. And God said to David, go up and take that city, the city of the Jebusites, that has remained like a little island that no one has been able to possess, which is what David did. He took that Jebusite capital 
and he made it his capital so that he could reign over all the peoples. So the kingdom of God in that circumstance is a manifestation of the intent of God to unify his people, to bring the various portions of the people of God together. And that's what a kingdom is all about, in which we subject or submit our own interests, our own desires, our own wills for the good of the body, in which we're willing to forego to do whatever is necessary for the good of the whole because we are unified in our purpose. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. Now David also brought up the ark in anticipation of this covenant. What was the ark? Well, the ark was a little box. It didn't seem very impressive at all, even though it was coated, covered with solid gold. It was impressive in that sense, but it wasn't very large, just about this big, a little box, a little oblong box. But that ark represented the throne of God. It was from that point that the lordship of God radiated over all the earth. And David brought the ark up to Jerusalem. Now what was the significance of that fact? Well, the significance of that fact is that David was expressing his desire to merge together his rule as a human ruler with God's rule as the divine ruler. David wanted God to be Lord of his life in everything that he did. David wanted the whole of his kingdom to be brought into submission to the lordship of God in his life. And that's why he was so concerned to bring up the ark. You remember how he failed the first time? You remember how Uzzah was struck dead because he tried to stop that cart from falling over? because the Israelites had not followed the law of God. But David persisted because he knew it was important to have God at the center of his kingdom. Now it is absolutely essential that you understand that in this day in which Christ is Lord, he must be the Lord of your whole life. It is not just to that portion of your life that you experience in worship or in church that he is to be Lord. It's when you go out of here, as you well know. It's when you go into the workaday world. It's when you go to your home that there also Christ must be Lord of all his people. Now a third anticipation of the establishment of this covenant is that David had rest from all his enemies. Notice how 2 Samuel 7 begins. After the king was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Then he began to talk about the establishment of the kingdom. For the kingdom of God is rest. Rest is a sign of prosperity. It's a sign of blessing. It's a sign of God's benediction. You know, when you're in such a turmoil, when you're so busy and got so much to do that you can't even sit down and enjoy a holiday with your family, something is a kilter. When you're a workaholic and so bound and tied to your work that you can't enjoy anything in life, something is a kilter. The picture of the kingdom of God by the prophets is every man sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree enjoying the benediction and the blessing of God in his life. It's when man doesn't have God at the center. It's when man becomes materialistic. It's when things are in the saddle and ride mankind 
that it's obvious that God's kingdom has not come. But oh, what a blessing it is when God gives you rest from your enemies, when he clears your conscience. Not that you have perfection in this life at this point, but you can come and confess your sins and have them washed away and know that you're at peace with God. And you can live in a good relationship with your neighbor. You can live in integrity with them. And so be at peace. The scripture says that the godly man is so blessed that God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That is one of the blessings of the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, we don't realize it in his final form yet. And David, even after this, had many wars yet. But we can taste it, can't we? We can experience something of the wonderful rest that comes from God being our ruler. Now, another interesting thing to notice about the coming of the kingdom of God in the Old Covenant is that it never experiences that depersonalization that so often accompanies power in the politics of the world today. Haven't you had the experience of a friend that was a good close friend and then suddenly he got promoted and then, you know, you saw him in the halls, but he didn't see you in the halls. He just forgot about you. He had risen up above you and for all sorts of reasons he couldn't speak to you quite in the same way. You see it in the structure of the military. They, since they've got to have that kind of structure in which you speak only in certain ways to those that are above you, and in some cases you don't speak to them at all until they first speak to you. Now that's not the case in the kingdom of God. And it's beautifully demonstrated in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. Look at this beautiful, tender picture of the way in which God, the Almighty King, the one that has all power, relates to his people. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. This is when God is responding to David's desire to build a house. God says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I, that is God, have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. What a tender picture. God's desire to remain a friend with his people, even though he is a Lord over his people. God doesn't want to separate himself from us. God doesn't want a great chasm fixed between you and himself so that you have to tremble and fear every time you come into his presence. No, almighty God continues to be your friend, to relate to you on a close personal basis. And if you're living in a tent, he's going to live in a tent with you. And if you're living in a small little hut, he's going to be in that small little hut with you. Wherever you are, whether prospering or otherwise, the Lord is going to identify with his people. That principle of Emmanuel is always going to be present with God's people. Now the final thing to notice and the most climactic thing with respect to the original establishment of the covenant with David is the interrelationship of God's son with David's son in 2 Samuel 7. Now here you have a prophecy with what you might call a multiple fulfillment. A prophecy with multiple fulfillment. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 14. 
Here is a prophecy about the son of David who is to reign on his throne. And what does God say of this one, the son of David, that is to reign on David's throne? God says in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. David's son, the successor of David to the throne, will be God's son. You see how close the merger of the kingdoms is? Why, David is going to be the heir to all the power that God has. For David's son is going to be God's son. And that means he's going to be heir to all the power of God's kingdom. Now that's rather staggering to imagine that the one who is going to rule over God's kingdom on earth is going to be the very son of God. Now that doesn't strike us quite as much as it might have the people of the Old Testament and New Testament times. For sonship meant equality. It meant equality in those old covenant days. Now we've got a little bit of perplexity here because you notice immediately says, if he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and the stripes of men. Now here you can say that's referring to Solomon. Solomon was the great son of David who reigned on David's throne and reigned in the place of God as an heir to all the power of God on earth. But Solomon sinned. And so God chastened him. He brought many foreign armies against Solomon and caused him to have many hard times because he had sinned. That's sort of the first level fulfillment of this word of the covenant about the son of David being God's son. But look in the New Testament and you can see a second and more significant level of fulfillment in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Now here, the word of God is talking about a special son, the one who is the eternal son of God. One who is equal with the Father and has been from the beginning of the world. You notice how the epistle to the Hebrews begins in chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He's the inheritor of the Father. And then he quotes a few verses from the Old Testament to establish the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. That's Psalm 2-7. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. That is 2 Samuel 7-14. In other words, in the covenant with David, there was the assurance that a son of God would come that would establish the eternal kingdom of God. And the new covenant tells us that Jesus Christ was that Son, equal to the Father, manifesting the glory of the Father, receiving all the power of the Father, and reigning beneficently on behalf of the Father. Did you hear the words of that second hymn that we sung tonight? Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest region shall his empire be. On behalf of the poor and needy, he shall reign to deliver them from the burdens of this life. 
And he's doing it right now. As his gospel is spread, as his lordship is manifest, he shows his power over all the nations of the world. Now there's one last phase of this lordship of the Son of God that should be recognized. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. First, the sonship was related to Solomon. Then the sonship was related to Christ. Now finally, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. David wanted to build a temple. The scripture says, you are that temple. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you. And that's a plural you there. That's y'all. I will be a father to all of you. That's 2 Samuel seven fourteen. And you, that is all of you, will be my sons in the plural and daughters in the plural. Now, what is that saying? That is saying that you are a fulfillment of the prophecy of 2 Samuel seven fourteen. It means you as the sons and daughters of God are in the position of reigning over heaven and earth with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it means that kingdom, that covenant that was established with David finds its ultimate realization in your seating, being seated at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and reigning with him. Now, it may not always seem that way to you, but by faith you can know it is true. You can know that God has made you his sons and daughters, his kings and his queens. The fact that this kingship of God now is a humble one, the fact that it is a kingdom where the people of God suffer is something that should not be, surprise you. You should rather rejoice that you are even ruling, overcoming your enemies by your suffering on behalf of Christ. And one day when he returns in great glory, you shall be seated with him to live and to reign with Christ forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we would humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that we do not deserve the least of your mercies, your blessings, or your grace. We certainly do not deserve to be kings and queens reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we accept by faith the word that you have said, that you will give us what we do not deserve, and that Christ will be Lord in us, for us, and through us. Help each one of us to believe these words of Scripture to worship and adore your unique Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to manifest his Lordship in every aspect of our lives. Even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us stand for the benediction.